Hi there and welcome to Raising Resilient Teens, the podcast version. My name is Sasha Lester and I'm so grateful you're here with me today, where we talk about all things teenagers, raising teenagers and the joys that go with it. With that, let's kick it off. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening and hello beautiful people wherever you are tuning in from. Today I'm going to read through with you a chapter of a book that I've written and it's pretty much being released at the same time as this podcast, which is an opportune time. But it's always different when you're hearing it from the writer's perspective. So I hope you enjoy. If you're a parent to a troubled teenager and you're struggling to connect or reconnect with them, then this chapter is for you. Successfully getting your children through the 1825 days of teenage life isn't easy. Most of the time, it's downright horrible. There's no book, there's no cheat sheet. It's not an MMORPG game which you can skip levels or pay someone gold to boost you through the tough stuff. You're unique and your children are equally unique which means that there's nobody on this planet which has gone through or is going to go through the same situations that you are dealing with right now. But you are not alone. As a mother first and certified Proctor Gallagher consultants and coach and mentor second, I know firsthand what it's like to be on the receiving end of challenging teens. I know what it's like to sit in the bread aisle at my local supermarket, rocking backwards and forth in tears, just wishing for it all to disappear. I understand that on the outside, things seem normal, yet on the inside, it could be a whole different world of sex, drugs, rock and roll, and that's being very broad. Holding in-depth conversations with law enforcement officers and detectives has been a common occurrence for me in the past, And I'm pretty sure it's not over yet. Oh, and let's not forget the multiple appearances that I've had to partake in attending all levels of court with my son, something I hope to never do again. The problem with teenagers is us. There, I said it. Bold statement, right? But we, as adults and parents, are the problem. And the sooner that we start to work on ourselves, the better we will become at understanding the world in which we expect our teenagers to lead triumphantly into the future. One of the first things that we need to look at is our perception, which primarily is being able to look at it from someone else's point of view, from your teenager's point of view. Perception is one of the six higher mental faculties and because of this, we have the ways and means to change how things appear. Our perception is our point of view. When we see something that causes us to think something cannot be done, we simply change our perception of the situation, originate an idea of how it can be done. Sounds simple enough, doesn't it? Yet as humans... We are programmed to live from the inside out. The programming causes a tendency for us to become a plaything for outside forces. And it's important for us to become aware of what is going on 
in our outside world, but also to be capable of creating and maintaining an individualised existence. Late 2019, I went through a stage with my son where we literally were at each other's throats every single day, day in, day out. We weren't talking. Doors were being slammed. Tears were flowing. He was yelling at his sister. He quite literally, physically, mentally, emotionally, thrown his toys in the air, packed his bags and marched out of home, moving in with his girlfriend three suburbs away, mind you, but still moved out of home. The fact that he'd chosen to leave home wasn't the part that upset me the most. The part that made me buckle over in uncontrollable crying was the fact that we weren't communicating. As a mother, not talking to any of my children was and is heartbreaking, but this was different. This was my son, my firstborn, and it was as if someone had come along stabbed me in the heart with a serrated edge knife, twisted it and dripped acid into the gaping wound. Okay, slight exaggeration, but, you know, you get the picture. So prior to him leaving, there were moments where the arguments would escalate to new heights and never quite fall back onto the ground. So it was a classic example of three steps in the wrong direction, two steps back. A lot of soul-searching was required and required quickly. I recall sitting in the car one Thursday afternoon talking to my younger cousin, whom I hadn't spoken to in maybe, let's go, 10 years or so, and his words of wisdom flooded over me. Get back in the car, go home, help your son pack his bag, ask him if he's got everything, and then say, I love you, and I'll see you soon. We debated that a lot. But I did it. I did just that, and it was the hardest thing I have ever done. I found solace in the situation once I could look at his look at it from his perspective. And as you sit there listening to me here right now, I'd like you to think of one particular tricky situation that is relevant for you, a situation that isn't quite working out the way you'd like it to, and I'd like you to, let's go, boardroom table it. Put the situation in the centre of the table and physically address it from different perspectives. Think of someone that you look up to and ask yourself, what would they say? What would your dad say? What would your mum say, your best friend, your coach, your mentor? What would your teenager say? And with your answers, be brutally, brutally honest. I was going to swear there, sorry. What would they say and how would they realistically deal with the situation? And the next step is then to think about whether you can adopt this perception, this angle, for a lengthy period of time moving forward. And in doing so, how would that ultimately change the outcome? So thinking back to the situation with my son, him throwing his toys in the air, moving out of home, and looking at it from his point of view was eye-opening. He wasn't being heard and he wasn't being listened to. He was frustrated. I was smothering him. 
I was asking him every question under the sun and not trusting him to do the right thing. And I wasn't actually listening. I was being a shit mum. I was a shit mum. And I'm not here to sugarcoat anything. It wasn't the first and it wasn't the last time. And I can't guarantee you that the majority, and I can guarantee you that the majority of parents out there have at one stage in their life felt exactly the same. I felt like I failed as a parent. And again, this wasn't the first time I'd felt this way. My daughter Addison competitively sails Optimus dinghies and is passionate about winning, succeeding and forever being the best version of herself. She is the epitome of my perfect client and believes and acts on everything that I teach and say. September 21, about six months ago, we found ourselves at her first real regatta. We arrived at training on the first day. We were late. I never do late. I can't do it. And that's when it all began. Other sailors had their boats already rigged up, and here was my daughter on the back foot right from the get-go. We moved past the fact that we were late, and everything was fine, fine, until she opened up the sail bag, pulled out the sail, unrolled it, and stood frozen in complete horror. My partner and I had gone and bought a new race sail for her first regatta as a surprise, and put it on the boom thinking it was a really good idea, but it wasn't. It wasn't even close. In an instant, she turned to me and she just said, I just want my old sail, mum. That's all. That's all I want. I just want my old sail. And it was at that defining moment that the mum guilt came flooding over and I felt like I had failed her. I should have read the sailing instructions myself. Instead, I left it to her. I could have spoken to the parents that had been coming for years to get the lowdown on how things happened, but I didn't. I should have spoken to her about the new race sail. I didn't. I should have. I could have, but I didn't. But we don't know what we don't know, right? This is true for teenagers, but it also rings very true for adults as well. I didn't know a lot of things, least of all how a new race sale could negatively impact my daughter's day, yet I should have. As Steve Jobs famously said, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backwards. So you have to trust the dots will somehow connect in your future. So do you trust and believe that you're on the path to connecting all your dots? I used to think that manifestation, vision boards, crystals, meditation cards, signs from the universe, etc., etc., was all a bunch of woo-woo. I didn't realise it at the time, but what I was doing, I was doing all of this subconsciously. When you work in harmony with the law and combine it with a little bit of woo-woo, magic stuff really happens. I recall one Christmas I was talking to my best friend and I was going through a million and one dating disasters and I said to her in a very direct voice that one day I would meet someone amazing that would sweep me off my feet, he'd own a boat, we'd anchor up at Horseshoe Bay, we'd live in a tiny house on a corner with a white picket fence and a dog 
And she looked at me dead in the eyes and said very softly, yes, yes, you will, because you do everything that you set your mind to. It took me many years and many, many dates with sailors ending in complete disasters until I found my Mr. Magical. In January 2020, I told my sister that I would be debt-free by the end of the year. Global pandemic of COVID-2019 hit us two months later and the world spiralled out of control. Yet every single day, I kept telling myself that by the end of the year, I would be debt-free. And I was. So you might be sitting there thinking, how can this possibly relate to raising resilient teenagers and connecting and reconnecting with them? A story for context. I separated from my ex when my children were five and one, respectively. And at that time, I had one goal. All I wanted was to be able to stay at home with my kids and be in a position to say yes, to say yes to them whenever they needed it and whenever I wanted to be there for them. I wanted to be able to attend the mother-daughter morning tea without having to take the day off work. I wanted to be able to do the drop-off and the pick-up to and from school every day, even if I didn't want to or didn't have to, and not plan for it. For me, that was my goal. And every single day I lived from that space of having that goal fulfilled when I drive to work, I'd imagine I was dropping my children to school. When I received note from school in my head, I would say, yes, yes, I'll be there, and then call my in-laws to see if they could actually attend. Soon work eased and I was working a four-day week. Then I was provided with the opportunity to work from home on occasions with written permission. But the big breakthrough came when I managed to negotiate different working hours which allowed me to pick up my children every single day. Metaphorically speaking, once the train starts to leave the station, there is no stopping. Kind of like once you stoke the fire, it gets hotter and hotter. And once that momentum had begun, and I could see that my goal of being around more of my children was starting to form more and more, everything started to fall in place quicker. It wasn't easy, it took time, but it was well worth it. I used to have this exact method in, I have used this exact method in many areas of my life. I now work for myself, I work four days out of seven, I attend every school event when I'm asked, I'm debt free and loving life. I wasn't loving life back then. Truth be told, it's got everything to do with your mind, not your brain, but your mind. Don't be confused by the two. They're totally different. So imagine an, an image of a circle which represents your head. So this circle is your mind and it's split into two distinct sections with a line across the middle horizontally. The top part's called the conscious mind. This is the thinking mind. This is the educated mind, the part of the mind that allows us to repeat information. This is the section of the mind that can churn out fact after fact for your physics, chemistry and biology exams, but is totally lost on you after a report card comes in. 
the bottom half of the circle, the bottom half of your head is where, shall we say, this is the emotional mind. So this is the subconscious mind. This is where the paradigms hang out. It's the part of the mind that only accepts ideas. It's got no way of rejecting them. The subconscious mind cannot differentiate from real or imaginary. The subconscious mind expresses in form whatever is impressed upon it and nourishes with continuous space repetition. So if you're subconsciously saying to yourself, I can't make my daughter's parade, I won't get the time off work, I'm so stuck in this nine-to-five job, I'm forever broke, I don't have enough money to pay the bills, I'm a shit mum, I just can't make it work, then guess what? That's exactly what you're going to get. So switch it up a bit. And it's simple as that. Perhaps even easier to wake up every morning with a positive, upbeat outlook on life than to be stuck dwelling on the now. Remember, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You just have to trust they will all marry up. But when we're dealing with troubled teens, it's hard to trust and believe and hold firm that life will do a 360 and come back around, right? Just doesn't happen. The results that you are achieving now, whether it be in work or with your teenagers, is a direct reflection of the image that you're holding of yourself. So self-image, as we know it today, was first discovered by Dr. Maxwell Maltz, who was involved with reconstructive surgery, commonly referred to as plastic surgery. And he found that when he did surgery on a patient and possibly removed or repaired some form of disfiguration to the person's face, there was not only a great change in the person's appearance, there was also noticeable psychological improvement. Dr. Maltz also observed that with some patients, regardless of how successful the operation was, there was no psychological change at all. This led him to postulate that we actually have two images, one that reflects back to us from the mirror and the one that we hold in our mind. So as the inner image is changed, the person's outer world changes also. A few questions to get you thinking. The first one, if your external world is a mirror of your internal self-image, what is your external world telling you about your self-image? And the second question, Is the image that you're projecting to the outside world a true image of how you feel about yourself? And number three, are there differences between what you're projecting towards others and how you really feel about yourself? And let's be true, these are some really powerful questions to get you thinking and it's something to really focus on when attempting to navigate the path through the eyes of your teenager to look at it from their perspective. To get into the nitty-gritty, you have to realise that you have two images. The inner self-image is a perception, there's that word again, of what you are, who you are, and what you are worth, which is programmed into the deep recesses of the mind. It's literally a control mechanism of what comes into your life, and how well you do. 
And then there's the outer self-image. So this is the image that you project to the world by the way you walk, the way you communicate with others, how you dress, and how you meet and greet everyone. The outer self-image is an outer expression of the inner self-image. It's important to note here that your results are a direct reflection of what is going on internally. So if you've got a negative or a bad image of yourself, then your results will reflect this. So my son went through a stage when he was where he was continually getting suspended from school, constantly getting in trouble with the law, threatening to self-harm, was experimenting with drugs, etc. You name it, I was there, we've all done it. And it wasn't until I had carried out my own personal development study that I realised these are all the results of what was going on inside his head. He was lost. He was lost within himself and deep down. He had a really poor self-image. It was shit. And he just wanted it to end. So pulling him out of that dark rabbit hole of despair, as I like to call it, took about 18 months. But unless they love themselves, they will never fully appreciate your love. It's very similar if you're... um, looking for love you first have to find love of yourself and within yourself before you can attract love to you that's a whole nother podcast so your self-image and altering your self-image is the key to success and it's the core of the program that i run and seeing individual change their lives simply by altering their self-image fuck it's amazing it's so flippin amazing i just love it So here's another question for you, specifically around teenagers. Were you raised by super strict parents? For me, growing up on a sheep property two hours west of the closest town, we were extremely isolated and there was no help. There was just us. And it was instilled into both my sister and I at a very young age that hard work and tenacity would get us through. My mother taught both of us via school at the end when we went studying, and when we weren't studying, sorry, we were helping with the chores, mustering the sheep, or helping out with the house. And as I know now, paradigms or habits, whether they be good or bad, are passed down to us through the ages. My dad was particularly hard on us, And when it came to instructions, if they weren't followed to a T, then there would be serious consequences or punishments. And because uh, we got to this stage, because that is how his father had brought him up and how my grandfather had been brought up by his father previously. When I was growing up, I was never praised to my face. I was never told, oh, my God, honey, you did an amazing job out there today. It was great. Thanks so much for checking on all those dams, Sasha. Thanks for bringing that flock of sheep in. Sasha, I'm so proud of you for getting near-perfect grades at school. Okay, fair point. That probably wasn't me. So on and so forth. I was, however, praised behind my back. 
to my mother, to my grandparents, to my sister, just not to me. And by studying the material that I teach every single day, I soon realised that Dad and Mum were doing the very best they could with what they had at the time and with their beliefs that had been passed down and passed down and passed down from generations before. So it's important to acknowledge the cycle passed down through generations, but for me it was even more important to break the wheel. For me, I wanted to create new habits that my children could choose to take with them or not. So by definition, a paradigm is a multitude of habits that have almost exclusive control over your habitual behaviour and almost all of our behaviour is habitual. Replacing a paradigm isn't a simple exercise as the existing paradigm is so strong that when you go to change it or fix it, you're having to overlay that paradigm with a new one, yet the original paradigm is constantly telling you, no, 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 you don't want to do that. Let's go back to what we know. Come on, back it up. So... If you've gotten this far, and I really appreciated it, 25 minutes in, I want to leave you with these three reminders. The first is what got me through some very, very dark years. The first one is you are not the only one going through this. There are people near and far that are going through very similar situations with their teenagers. Secondly, teenagers don't need fixing. We are all perfect human beings. We are God's highest form of creation and we can, we can do, be and have everything we want. Your teenagers are perfect. They're just a wee bit misunderstood. And the third and perhaps most importantly, Whatever you plant to your subconscious mind and nourish with constant spaced repetition has no other option other than to move into physical form. So if you master those three, you've got it. And at the time of recording this podcast, I've got a few more things to say. Not every fairy tale has a magical ending. I am, however, one of the lucky ones, and my story does, in fact, end on a high note. Just recently, my 19-year-old son moved out of home for the second time, just over a month ago. Only this time, it was planned. I had time to mentally, physically and emotionally, I think probably on a deeper level, to prepare for his departure. It was organised, well, kind of. He arranged for a few mates to come and collect all his stuff and shove it in the car. And my partner and I were laughing at his disorganisation, handing him towels and sheets just in case, and talking to him in a calm and collected manner. My daughter, on the other hand, was chomping at the bit, ready to overtake his room, and Teddy, the cavoodle, didn't quite know what was going on. 
And as he drove out, I sat to my, said to myself, I've done it. After close to two years of standing firm in my faith that he would be fine, that he would end up with a solid nine-to-five job, that would be, would be back on talking terms and that our family unit would be whole again, it was done. I had succeeded. And now, 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 flip, I can take on the world. And I hope you can too. And just like that, it's a wrap. I hope you've enjoyed the last 20 or so minutes and have walked away with some golden nuggets of information. If you'd like to join our Raising Resilient Teens Facebook group, the link will be in the comments. And until next time, ciao.